So, um, a couple of things just as we get started. First of all, uh, a couple of years ago, Bruce Bell was uh, talking to me and said, you know, I'm, I, um, I want to I help my Bible study people see Jesus in the Bible, see him in the Old Testament. And we were talking about prophecy and how Christ is evident by prophecy in the Old Testament. But that's not the limits of where we find Christ in the Old Testament and the way in which we find Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, he's there in shadows and echoes and foreshadowing. And, um, and that's really what we're after here in uh, these evening services. This is the third of mine. Uh, I'm again in March the 5th, and then Greg and Pastor Patrick will be um, sharing the other dates. And, um, and, that, and that prayer that Gordon led us in just a moment ago, open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus. We want to see him through the Old Testament. And a lot of times um, we may hear of inventive pastors who can find what's referred to as biblical principles, and they are indeed throughout uh, throughout the Old Testament, but there's more. And if you rely on the moral uh, teachings of those biblical principles, then your soul can get starved. And so um, what I find in my life is that when we find Jesus in the Old Testament, that is food for my soul. And I love that kind of preaching. And, um, and actually, I'm kind of giving you what feeds my soul and I only hope that it feeds yours as well. Um, let's see, that was the first thing. Second thing, I want to, oh, so if, it'll be helpful. I didn't put the scripture passage in, the, in your bulletins this time. So it would be helpful if you have a Bible or if there's one under your chair to pull that out because I'm going to be making some references to it. And, um, and, and you might find, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 9. Uh, from that Bible, and there, there should be someone around you if it's not directly with you. And as we get started here today, I'm going to ask you to indulge me in this. Um, Ron Kellum's brother, his name is Ken, uh, he lives in Cincinnati? Indiana. Okay. Ah, they're all right there together. Uh, he lives in Indiana. He's a Hoosier up there. He's in the hospital right now. He has the same disease I do, myasthenia gravis, and right now he's having a myasthenia crisis, and he's in the hospital. His tongue is swollen. He can't swallow, and it's, um, and it's, it's, I know what a hard time he's having now. So I'd like to just start as we, as we get started here. Ken and I have, uh, have become sort of uh, phone buddies. Um, over the last year and a half or so when I discovered that I had the same thing he has. And we prayed for each other on and off. And so I'd like to just start out by praying for Ken Kellums. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can uh, study your Bible, that we can read together and, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and uh, to that end, God, I pray that t- tonight be a, might be a rich time of study and uh, and learning for us, and that we might be challenged to go forward in our Christian faith. We pause in this moment to pray for Ken, uh, who is struggling, uh, I know, no end right now. And, Lord, I, I pray for Ken, that you would 
uh, draw near to him, that he would be assured of your presence with him, that he would be strengthened by that knowledge, that you would empower the, the doctors and nurses who tend to him, God, that they would be um, helpful and communicative and um, kind uh, as Ken struggles through this latest crisis. And pray, God, your blessing on him, thanking you for your grace and mercy in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we kind of live in fractured times politically in this country. Have you noticed that? (laughs) And, and, And our tendency is to think, um, uh, C.S. Lewis referred to it as cultural superiority. It, um, we, we think that this is the worst of, of how it's ever been. I would suggest to you tonight that even though I would agree that we are fractured politically, and I'm wondering if we ever will come back to, a, to something more reasonable, um, It hasn't been the worst of times. We're not in the worst of times that this country has ever seen. Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a book called Team of Rivals, and in it she peels back the historical shroud of folklore and reveals the president's administration that was often characterized by internal conflict exacerbating the war in government and a war between the states. And, of course, you know the president was Abraham Lincoln. I know our current president is loudly assailed, but Abraham Lincoln was loudly, loudly decried. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, you might recognize that name. He was popular and uh, enduring author, and he was a very loud voice in his day. And he said of the election of Lincoln, uh, Lincoln had just been elected, And this is what one of the loudest voices in America at that time said. We heard the result of the election coldly and sadly. It seemed too rash on a purely local reputation to build so grave of trust in such anxious times. Lincoln chose as his cabinet three loud rivals for the presidency. William Seward, a New York senator. You may remember William Seward from um, Alaska. Remember the purchase of Alaska? They called it, remember what they call it? Seward's Folly. I think what they, for like $1.47 or something like that, they bought Alaska. It was a little bit more than that. Samuel P. Chase was the um, Ohio governor, and Edward Bates was a distinguished statesman from Missouri, and uh, and there was constant carping on the outside of the cabinet room, to be sure, but but on the inside, perhaps an even louder hue and cry went up as they fought for position and for power within that government. Now, I rehearse that little tidbit of history to simply point out that in any administration, in any time, there are always any number of issues that must be Balance and any number of ways that balancing can take place. But in the end, only one person makes the decision. 
Such was the case with David as one successful military campaign after another. We looked at one last uh, last time, well, actually two, two times ago, David and Goliath, that was a successful military campaign, and that brought about the anger of Saul because the people then tended to love David and Saul, who was a coward, uh, and uh, protecting himself at the expense of his people. He fell into disrepute with his country, uh, and, uh, and everybody liked, loved David. And then you know, David fought some other campaigns on behalf of Saul, and uh, one after another, he was winning, uh, and, and finally, um, peace and, and uh, a settling of accounts with the part of Israel's king. Uh, at that time then, was David. Now, how does one conduct oneself as king? To Israel's hurt, Saul conducted his reign so as to bring shame and harm to God and his people Israel. David had a fresh start. Who would he listen to? Remember last week we talked about how David gathered to himself the bitter of spirit, the 400 people who were indebted and bitter of spirit. And that was the beginning of David's uh, happy cadre who would follow him around and support him in battle. He won war after war. Finally, Saul would be killed. But who was David going to listen to? Who uh, would, Who would he choose for a role model? And David won the wars, but really the issue at this point was, could he win the peace? There are many divergent thoughts that would come from David's team of rivals, those people that he chose to listen to. <clears throat> First thing we want to talk about is a promise that had been made. Saul's oldest son was Jonathan, and he was, uh, apart from David, Saul's most accomplished general, and Jonathan was Saul's most trusted advisor. But there was a problem. Jonathan was a friend of David. In fact, a covenantal friend with David, which is to say that they exchanged friendship vows, that they would be friends to one another and their households forever. And that oath was part of a covenantal ceremony conceived in blood, which is very rare in the scriptures. But it was an unusual friendship, this Jonathan and David friendship. And Jonathan had children. One was named Ish-bosheth, which means man of God. Excuse me, man of shame. Boy, did I get that one wrong. <coughs> and the other one was called Mepha-bosheth, which means shame out of one's mouth. Uh, that, so that surname Bosheth simply means shame. And the scriptures tell us that Mepha-bosheth was crippled, lame in both feet. In 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That is the news of their death. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. 
Now, we don't know exactly the nature of the fall or the crippling, crippling incident in, in, Jonathan's, or in Mephibosheth's life, but we're quite sure of the outcome of that. He was lame. Now, Mephibosheth should have led a, a charmed life. He was a prince, the son of the next in line to the throne. He had untold wealth and privilege that belonged to him. But, as it turned out, he was born out of season, at the wrong place, and at the wrong time. He was five years old when his father and his grandfather were killed. Fearing the ensuing rout of their armies, his, his nanny picked him up and likely fell on him in her haste and crushed his feet beyond usefulness. Now, today, there is hope for such a situation as that. But in that day, uh, Mephibosheth's day, it was a day of agriculture and military. And Mephibosheth wasn't just useless, he was in the way. Not only that, it was expected in the day that such a person would be reduced to begging. And there was every likelihood that if he was discovered, that the new dynasty, whoever that would be, would put him to death as it was usually done between dynasties. But there was a promise remembered. Peace, at least for the time, has broken out in Israel. And David has time to think about something other than military strategy. What he remembers is his friend Jonathan. And he asks a question that would have shaken that cabinet room of his. His generals would have been appalled. And his princes would have been confounded. And David's own team of rivals would have been aflame and pushback to, see, to even the thought of what he was considering. Because he said, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Are you kidding me? You can't possibly be serious extending the effective life of a previous dynasty. That's the rough, rough equivalent of Lincoln allowing Confederate soldiers to keep their rifles. The word that's used twice in this section and once in the next is the word kindness. And it's typically translated covenant faithfulness. The Hebrew word is, well, it looks like chesed to us, but to a Hebrew, it was chesed. But we'll call it chesed because chesed is hard to say. So the word, when translated chesed, covenant faithfulness, or in this case, kindness. And David wants to be true to a promise made some 15 years ago in blood between he and Jonathan. And David would be, would be protective of Jonathan and his family forever. That was the promise. Now, our passage says that there was a servant in the house of Saul, and that's probably an understatement, simply to call him a servant. His name was Ziba, and Ziba was likely the CFO for Saul and the kingdom and handled the family's estate as well. Now, there is, in this case, a whiff of duplicity that takes place here. Some commentators believe that there's a suggestion that Ziba didn't just check genealogical records to find out who might be connected to Jonathan. In fact, 
he may be have intentionally throwing Mephibosheth under the bus. Uh, well, chariot. The idea is that Mephibosheth was probably in hiding. He wouldn't have wanted to be discovered because, as far as he knew, there was every likelihood that the next king would have him put to death. Not only that, he from a previous dynasty, but he, he was also lame, making him not only a threat, not only useless, given the day and time also, but in the way and a burden to everyone who took him in. But Ziba outed him. Perhaps, perhaps with the thought that Saul's estate would then devolve to him as the CFO. And we read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness, chesed, for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. This is a guy from the house of Saul saying to David, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the chesed of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lobar. And then there was a promise that was paid. David meets with Mephibosheth, and the entire mood of this chapter changes in the second section here. In the previous section, David is referred to as king. In this section, this meeting with David David is referred to simply as David. The king has now become a faithful friend. And David communicates in this section of the passage two things, two important things that he says to Mephibosheth. First, he says, do not fear. Do not fear. That is a fairly common saying when people are preparing to face Almighty God or have faced him and they are fearful of the consequences when there is no mediator. Gideon and Samson both had the experience in our study of judges some time ago. Elijah and Moses both had an experience but found shelter in the cleft of the rock on Mount Nebo, and which was also called Mount Sinai. And when Mephibosheth was outed, given the cultural standards of the day, he believed that he would be put to death, and so he begs. He takes the begging position when he enters the presence of Israel's king. But just as the shepherds in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night had their fears belayed when they submitted to the king of Israel, the one who was born king of Israel, so also Mephibosheth received good news when he was submissive before Israel's king. So that was the first thing he heard. Do not be afraid. The second was, eat at my table. Biblically, eating is a powerful symbol of 
friendship. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. And it was scandalous because friends shared meals. Uh, We read in in, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 46, about the early church, these disciples, these people who, who were gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world for this Passover feast. They converged into Jerusalem. And they heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit came. People's eyes were open. Their hearts were melted. Their ears were burning, as the scriptures say. And people heard the gospel. And they awakened. And they became believers in Jesus Christ. And these disparate people from all over the world, some of them at conflict with others, they were now all together believers in Jesus. Acts 2.46 says, and day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Eating is a powerful symbol of friendship. I was in in seminary in Mississippi uh, where Patrick, uh, my northern friend Patrick, went to school. And there was a restaurant in uh, downtown Jackson called the White House Restaurant. Did you ever eat there? Okay. Uh, It was a buffet, but it was all served family style with long rows of linen-dressed tables. Uh, They're kind of like picnic tables. They just had long lines of them. Uh, And you ate off of Lazy Susans. And you'd spin those Lazy Susans around, and and, uh, this guy over here would grab something, reach across you, grab something... And it was, uh, it was kind of a free-for-all. It was interesting. But you might have a judge on one side of you and a homeless guy on the other side of you. It didn't matter. They were, that day, your best friends at lunchtime. David Tanner and I went up to Philadelphia together. We went to see the, an Army-Navy game together. And one place we stopped at was at a place in Philadelphia called the Reading Terminal. Let's see. Uh, do I see uh, Mike Collins here? There you are. You ever eat at Reading Terminal? Many times. You know, Reading Terminal is this huge place with all sorts of food places all around. And you get, you get your food from whichever place. And then they have, they have these tables around the middle. And, and you, you just go and find a seat if you can. Uh, and and it, it, you're sitting next to people you never met before. And, but uh, we sat across from um, two African-American inner-city teachers, two delightful ladies, and we had a a wonderful time. But, you know, that day, those two inner-city African-American teachers were our best friends. And uh, and that's what happens when you eat together. It's a time of rich fellowship, um, and, and that's what eating is in the Bible. When God's king was eating with God's enemies, it was a sign of God's grace. So we read in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. To the church at Laodicea in Revelation, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this points to the fact that Christ doesn't hate us. He doesn't merely tolerate us, but he invites us into a relationship of intimacy and friendship. I will come in to him and eat with him. Revelation chapter 19, Rachel read it earlier. The marriage supper of the Lamb. The supper, marriage supper of the Lamb. 
is made equal to heaven. That's how they describe heaven, eating together. So we read about this in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, and he fell on his face, and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then we see a promise enhanced. Uh, Not only was uh, Mephibosheth not to fear, and not only was he a friend, but his position was enhanced in that he was told that he was to be like one of the king's sons. Wow. Wow. Not only was he going to eat at the king's table, but he was going to be like one of the king's sons. He was an enemy. His family was uh, was at war with, with King David. But now this one, David rescues this one, and he became like one of the king's sons, adopted into the family of the king. This was a huge leap for Mephibosheth because... A matter of hours, maybe even minutes before he was outed before a king that he assumed would have killed him upon sight. Now he is basking in the glow of being adopted into the king's family and eating at his table and receiving back possession and title to all Saul's holding. And Ziba, who may have been trying to usurp the the estate, would now, he and his family be servants to Mephibosheth. <clears throat> We're going to read that in 2 Samuel 9, 9 to 13. Uh, Patrick, I think I found what you left back here. <laughs> Obliged. Okay, uh, 9 through 13. Then the king called Ziba, saw servants and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. Boy, how his face must have fallen in that moment. And you and your son and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. (coughs) But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That was quite a windfall for Mephibosheth, who up to that point had been in hiding. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And just to remind us, it says, now he was lame in both feet. So, what are we 
why do we study such an apparently insignificant story about a shameful man from Low Debar, which incidentally means nowheresville? <clears throat> well, this is our takeaway. First of all, this is a story of how the humble are raised up and the proud are taken down. Ziba coveted the power, the wealth, the prestige of the house of Saul. He threw Mephibosheth under the bus to get it. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And on the other hand, Mephibosheth, who was characterized even himself as a dead dog, fell at David's feet, throwing himself at his mercy. It was Mephibosheth's humility that led to his reconciliation, restoration, and his ascension to that position, which follows the typical biblical path that the way up is down and the way down is up. That's the first takeaway. The second takeaway is this is also a story about love. Not momentary, in the moment feel good love, but chessed love, covenantal love, sacrificial, help till it hurts love. Chesed is a word used for kindness in verse 3. It's also the word that's used in Genesis 39, verse 21, where it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him chesed and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So the Lord is giving chesed to Joseph. Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord passed before him, proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, abounding in chesed and faithfulness. And it's the same word used by David in Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and chesed shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I could go on and on throughout the Old Testament showing you example after example of the word chesed. It is ubiquitous. <laughs> but I'm not going to go on. The point is, covenantal love, the type of love demonstrated by David towards Mephibosheth, for Jonathan's sake, is commended to us. That chesed David showed Mephibosheth cost David the fortune that would have ordinarily been his. If he had conquered Saul and his armies, those should have adounded uh, uh, to David. But David didn't keep it. David, because of his chesed for Jonathan and for Mephibosheth, he took that treasure and he gave it to Mephibosheth. It cost David something. Uh, it threatened his dynasty and it cost David credibility from his trusted advisors. But if we're to stop the sermon here, while you'd have a helpful and encouraging sermon with some moral high ground to seek, you would have missed the point of this passage and some what I would think of as delicious food for the soul. You see, the point of this passage of Scripture is that you and I are Mephibosheth. Let me explain. By all rights, Mephibosheth was at war with David. And before the king of the universe, God Almighty, we were his enemies. Yes, we were enemies. I don't like that phrase, but that's what the Bible says. Romans 5.10 says exactly that. For if while we were enemies, 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, worse than enemies. We were, Paul tells the church at Ephesus, we were by nature children of wrath. And like Mephibosheth and his family, we were enemies, uh, were enemies of David, so we were kings of our own lives. Not only kings of our lives, but servants of the prince of darkness. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose the serpent over God. But make no mistake, if you think that you could have done better than Adam and Eve, you're sorely mistaken. We would have done the same thing, and maybe worse, if we were in their shoes. I know I would have. Consequently, we deserve death. We were lame. In fact, Jesus told a story that says as much. In Luke chapter 14, So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. He was speaking of us. We had nothing to contribute to the master of the house, God Almighty. We had nothing to commend us to God for his dinner party, like the broken, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. But God, in his great love and mercy and compassion, his chest had said, do not fear. Taking the threat of being an enemy away from us. In Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, he finishes that by saying, we were reconciled to God. And God invited us to eat at his table. We did this morning. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we are more than reconciled enemies. We are also intimate friends. He has made us like sons and daughters, like the prodigal son, and like... Mephibosheth. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, for you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And just as David shows mercy for Jonathan's sake, God showed mercy for us for Jesus' sake. Jonathan had to die for Mephibosheth to have a seat at David's table. Jesus had to die for us to have a seat at God's great banquet. So Jesus on the cross was assigned by the Father every one of the sins of every one of his people, past, present, and future. That which made us enemies of God now made Jesus culpable for those sins. Not his sins, but our sins. So that the curtain to the Holy of Holies was torn, opening the way to the presence of God even to the poor, blind, crippled, and lame, which you will recall from the book of Leviticus, were, were regarded as, um, as people who could not even come into the temple because they were not perfect. Now that the veil of the temple has been torn, not only do we come to the temple in the presence of God, but we come poor, blind, and lame into the very holy of holies, to the presence of God. And to you and I who were enemies, uh, through the chesed of Jesus, we are reconciled to God. Jesus said, it is finished. Sin has been paid for. The poor, crippled, blind, uh, blind and lame could now come to the banquet. And that's why we study such a passage, because it points to Jesus and the gospel.
the good news that for Christ's sake, God takes the lame at his table. God has shown us mercy for Christ's sake. God has mitigated our fear of death for Christ's sake. God has entered into a relationship of friendship and, yes, sonship for Christ's sake. And we receive this simply by faith. Mephibosheth had nothing to offer in exchange for the kindness received, nor do we. We are Mephibosheth. We, like Mephibosheth, simply receive it, the king's grace, thankfully and graciously. One more thing. The gospel is not just for our justification. The gospel is for our sanctification as well. Our path to spiritual maturity. You see, we're hardwired to try to put God in our debt. What I mean when I say that is that our default mechanism is we try either by force of our will, by the quality of our lives, by habits of holiness we try to develop, we try to obligate God, then in return, to bless us. God, if I pray in a certain way, then you will have to answer my prayer. God, if I have quiet times all this week, I want all green lights. This story, in this story, Ziba tries to obligate the king, David, to pass to him his family's, uh, and his, uh, he and his family, Saul's sizable estate. And he tried to do that by passing on some bad, inf- well, actually it was good information, but it was bad information about Mephibosheth. He was trying to buy David's favor. He was trying to obligate David to give him that estate. But that got him nowhere. It was the broken of Mephibosheth that won the day. In the New Testament, it was the Pharisees who sought to obligate God, to bless them and grant them high places and privilege. But it was the very thing they sought to use to obligate God that drew Jesus' scorn. They were the older brother of the story of the prodigal son. The gospel says, we repent and believe to the unsaved, but also to the saved. The gospel is the saved. That's why uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous English preacher from uh, a, a century ago, used to say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. You who, even you who believe in Jesus. I was with a friend this week who shared with me some of his struggles. Certainly didn't have all the answers, and he questioned some of the answers the Bible gave. And then he said to me something quite profound. I think descriptive of all of us. He said, I struggle, but that doesn't keep me from believing. Does that match up with you? Do you struggle sometimes? I do. And it is the gospel of the humble and broken submission at the feet of the king that propels us forward in our Christian life. The admission that either by behavior or belief, we struggle, but that doesn't stop us from believing. In the Galatian church, it was by covenantal ceremony. They sought to obligate God. For them, it was circumcision. And Paul's response was, in Galatians 3, 1 and 2, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, 
This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by flesh? Mephibosheth didn't have to ever pay David for his place. That was a free gift to him that he only had to receive. He didn't have to earn it. He never had to earn it. He was a son of the king now. So 2 Samuel is prescriptive, not not what we do, but what we believe. In John chapter 6, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, John chapter 6, Jesus had just performed the miracle of the loaves and the fish, and 10,000 people were following him all around. Why? Because they wanted to, they wanted to get fed. This is, this is one of the great welfare uh, states of the time. And, uh, and they followed him around. They wanted him to, to feed them. They're thinking about Moses. Hey, now this guy's the new Moses. You know, Moses, he, uh, he gave manna every day. Maybe that's what this guy's going to do. And they follow him everywhere. And, and he wasn't giving them food every day. And finally they said to him, well, what must we do to do the works of God? How can we obligate God to give us food every day? Jesus said, the work, singular, the work of God is this. Believe in the one whom he has sent. We believe that the king loves to have us at his table as we live in humble submission with him as sons and daughters. And we continue to eat at his table by not rising up in protest against the king, but by graciously, humbly, and thankfully continue to enjoy fellowship with him. And that's the gospel. Repent and believe. It is food for the soul. And that's the normal Christian life. Would you pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the the truth of the gospel. That you have showered on us mercy beyond imagination that we were broken people. We were indebted people. We were bitter of soul. We were poor, blind. Because of your grace and mercy, you have invited us to come and eat at your table to enjoy that fellowship as sons and daughters. How we thank you for that, God. We pray that you'd bless us every day as we struggle and yet believe. God, help us in our unbelief. Thank you for this time together here. And thank you for the scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to conclude with a song. Uh, and it's called Speak, O Lord. You've heard it before. We've sung it before. And what we're going to do is the quartet is going to sing the first stanza, and then you can stand to your feet, and we'll sing the second and third together. It's, uh, it's on the, the words are back here.
Thank you.